You are listening to a message by Refuge Community Church. Refuge exists to glorify God by making disciples that shape their communities with the love of Jesus. Refuge family, what is up? Happy Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, whenever you're joining us, happy uh, whatever day it is, right? Welcome. I appreciate you joining us. If you don't know me, my name is Josh. I serve as the lead pastor here at Refuge, and I'm going to be honest with you. I haven't preached to you, okay, in two weeks, and I am just excited, all right? I'm just excited. I'm pumped up, and so I'm ready to jump in. But before we do, I simply want to take a second to look at you and say welcome, Especially if this is one of your first few times you're checking us out. But even if you call Refuge home, I want to say welcome. Thank you for spending your time with us. Like, we appreciate that. You could be anywhere right now. Um, uh, for those of you that are new, though, Refuge is a new church in southeast Austin, uh, serving the Austin area at large. We exist to make disciples that shape our communities with the love of Jesus. And we do this by living out three rhythms, connecting with God, growing with family, and serving the city. And we would love to connect with you, okay? And so if you would do me a huge, huge, huge favor, okay, if you would just scroll down or click wherever you need to go and go to the video description of this video and look for the words connection page or connection card. If you would click that link, fill that form out and send it into us, that is the easiest way for us to connect with each other. But more importantly, it's probably the best way for us to learn how to pray for you, how to serve you, all that good stuff. And so again, Thank you so much for joining us. We cannot wait to connect with you, okay? Now, having said that, you know what time it is. It's my favorite time of the week. I hope it is one of your favorite times of the week. Uh, we are time. It is time, I should say, for us to jump into the Word of God. And I hope you came spiritually hungry because I really do believe that God's Word has a feast for us. We're fixing to eat, all right? I, I really do believe that God's Word is going to speak to us today, and I'm pumped up. Uh, we're actually finishing up our sermon series, New Mercies, where we're taking a look at how the gospel or the message of Jesus redefines the idea of personal growth. Okay, we just started a new year. A bunch of people are thinking about ways that we can grow, ways that we want to grow. But for a follower of Jesus, what does that even mean? Right? Like, what does it even look like for a follower? Is it any different? Is it the same? What does that look like? And so, so far in the series, we've covered three aspects of personal growth. The first was the setting of personal growth, right? We've talked about it being in both the ups and the downs of our lives. Then we talked about the purpose of personal growth, which is to help us grow in godliness or godly character, right? The idea of sanctification, all right? And then last week, we covered the obstacles of personal growth, the weight and the sin that often distract us from our goals. And this week, we're finishing up by talking about the tools of personal growth, aka how you do it. What you have at your disposal as a follower of Jesus to follow Jesus and to grow uh, spiritually, personally, all that. And so if I'm being honest, friends, this week is critical because like, for real, we all have areas that we want to grow in. We all have even the, the people that we want to be in. And maybe you set goals or New Year's resolutions, or maybe you don't do any of those, but you just have this desire to grow and to be a certain type of person or, or, or achieve certain things. And those desires aren't bad. Hear me. I don't think any of those desires are bad. But oftentimes, we, we begin pursuing those goals, those resolutions, those desires without even knowing how to get there. 
without even knowing how to get from point A to point B, much less point A to point Z, right from start to finish. And have you ever been here? Like you ever had a destination, got in there, forgot your phone, and then you don't know where you're going, right? It used to be a map, but if I ever forget my, my phone at the house and I'm going somewhere new, I have no clue where I'm going, right? It actually, um, the, whole, the whole scenario actually reminds me of something that happened last week, and this is not about leaving my phone at home, but a couple weeks ago my daughter turned three and one of the gifts she got was one of those cool electric cars that kids can drive you know and I was really excited for my daughter um but the thing is when I opened the box what I found in the box was very different than what I saw on the box okay when I looked at the box what I saw was like uh, a really big box with a picture of a truck on it kids inside having fun everything looked great when I opened the box looked inside what I found was like 500 little pieces and a three-page instruction manual written in Mandarin Chinese so I was looking at it like I don't even know what to do with this right and so we bring it home it's in the garage and uh, and one day the next week the following week I just get my little tool bag and I walk in I'm like hey I'm gonna finish that like I'm gonna put that together that from start to finish, I'm going to do it this afternoon. I got my tool bag hoping that whatever I would need would be in there. And then I dive in and I start. And, and yeah, there's obvious things like a Phillips head screwdriver that just makes sense, right? And But then after a second, I start encountering like different screw heads. And um, and, and then I find like different bolts and nut combinations. And, and I start to realize I don't have the right tools. But I start reaching into my tool bag and pulling out anything that I can to try to get the job done. But as I do, I realize that these tools are, are, are starting to scratch up. And every once in a while, one of them will, will, will like kind of kind of like like break off and hit something. So it's getting dented and scratched and all messed up. And I'm really trashing my daughter's truck before she even gets to ride in it. And then at the very end I finally finished but if I'm being honest I was looking at it and I was very insecure about the structural integrity of this truck and with good reason because a couple of days later my, my daughter was riding in our backyard and she comes around the corner and I'm I'm watching her and as she comes around the corner I noticed that the back right tire isn't spinning that bad boy is like wobbling it is like all over the place so i stop her i get her out of the truck and as i start pulling the little mini truck toward me the tire just pops off right friends i had finished the truck but here's the difference i had not met my goal i finished the truck but i had not met my goal and you see i think this is oftentimes what we do with our lives we have these spiritual goals or maybe these relational goals, maybe marriage goals or personal goals. And we have, uh, we, we bring our tool bag, right, uh, onto this journey. And this tool bag is filled with all these tools from like culture and our friends and blog posts and uh, YouTube celebrities and all this other stuff. Uh, and we get started and, and as we go along, we start realizing the tools we have don't work, but we're forcing them anyway and they start denting up our own lives, hurting us, bruising us, maybe even hurting and bruising the people around us. And at the end, we like to think we have this finished product, but it's really all hanging on by a thread. And if you hit a bump hard enough, if you take a, sh a turn sharp enough, the whole thing falls apart. 
But friends, I believe God has something better for us. I believe that God wants to build things stronger in us. Uh, And I believe he's given us the tools to partner with him in building those things. He just has to adjust a little bit of how we see things. And so today, what I want to show us and what I want to talk about is the tools of personal growth, the tools that God gives us for personal growth. And the big idea that I want you to walk away from today with is this, that only the right goals can reveal the right tools and only the right tools can bring the right results. I'm going to say that again, that only the right goals can reveal the right tools and only the right tools can bring the right results. This idea really comes from uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4. Uh, and, and to help us work through a few, a few verses in, in that chapter, I want to break down today's sermon into three parts. The first one is the wrong tools. What are the wrong tools to be using? The second is what is the correct goal? If the correct goal is the only way we understand the right tools, what is the correct goal? And finally, after understanding the correct goal, I want us to talk about the right tools. So let's go ahead and dive in, starting with the wrong tools. We're going to be in 1 Timothy. We're going to be in chapter 4. We're starting in verse 6. I am going to be reading from the CSB translation. You can read along in whatever you want, but the CSB will be up on the screen. Uh, Let's go ahead and dive in again, starting in verse 6, 1 Timothy chapter 4. It goes like this. If you, that is Timothy, point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, nourished by the words of the faith and the good teaching that you have followed, but have nothing to do with pointless and silly myths. If you would join me in a short blessing over our time in the word before we go forward. Father, thank you for your word. Bless this time in your word. Empty me. Let me only speak your word and let us receive from your word today. We pray these things in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Well, hey, before we continue, before we dive into seeing what 1 Timothy 4 is saying about the wrong tools, I want to give us a little bit of context for 1 Timothy. Okay, Uh, what are we reading here? Okay, what we're actually reading is a letter from the Apostle Paul to a young man, his son in the faith, named Timothy. And at the time, Timothy was actually leading a church in a city called Ephesus. And it may have been, some believe, the biggest church in the entire world at the time. And so Paul is writing to this young man, his son in the faith, giving him instructions about how to lead this diverse big church uh, in the city of Ephesus. And so he covers a lot of different themes and a lot of different grounds. And here in chapter four, one of the things that Paul touches on is the idea of false teaching. Okay, and he encourages Timothy to refute or, or, or to argue against false teaching, showing the people the, the, the truth. That's the first part where it says, put these things in front of the brothers and sisters. And then he encourages Timothy to steer himself and his congregation away from pointless and silly myths. But what are these pointless and silly myths? What are these ideas that that Timothy is supposed to, to steer clear and steer his congregation clear of? And most biblical scholars believe that Paul is at least, if not entirely, talking about the false teachings that are located in the verses just above verse 6. Okay, so in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, 
Paul says, now the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. They forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods that God created to be received with gratitude by those who believe and know the truth. And so these pointless and silly myths that Paul is instructing Timothy to steer clear of are these beliefs that depriving yourself of marriage or of certain types of food would actually gain you approval, acceptance, salvation from God, that they would purge a person or absolve a person, free a person from the regret, from the shame, uh, from uh, uh, the, the guilt associated with their own actions, their own shortcomings. It was a way to gain salvation at its, at its most corrupt version and a way to just become a better person at its, its least corrupt but still corrupt version, right? Like, like this, these are the ideas that Timothy is wrestling with. And here's the thing. These are ideas that are not rooted by godliness, but rather these were ideas that were being propelled by guilty consciences, right? Verse 2 in, in 1 Timothy chapter 4 says that the ideas are being promoted by folks with seared consciences, meaning that they had done something that left them riddled with some type of guilt, regret, shame. And now they're really responding to that by living out these false practices. And I know what you're thinking. If you're anything like the majority of people, it's really easy to look at all this and be like, man, these folks are kind of crazy. Like, I know it's the ancient world and stuff. I know it's a long time ago, but it still sounds a little crazy. Like, how could someone think that not eating certain foods or not getting married or, or maybe even not having uh, uh, relations with your spouse in marriage, how could they think this would absolve them? This would forgive them. This would get them acceptance. How? It's crazy. But, but if I'm leveling with you, if I'm being honest with you, and if we're being honest with one another, me and you, we're not too far removed from this version of crazy, uh, from this quote-unquote craziness, right? Um, you just have a few, few thousand years between us. Let me break down what I mean by that. In the Bible, it's clear that you don't need a Bible to know that there's a God, okay? Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. In other words, I can really just look at the sky and be like, there's got to be something more than me because I can't account for all this. It, this is a clear testimony that there has to be something bigger. There has to be a God. In addition, the Bible also teaches that you don't really need the Bible to know that with creation, God has also made some rules. Right. Romans 2 actually talks about ancient non-Hebrew people and the non-Hebrew parts important because it means they didn't have the word of God or the laws of God. Yet Romans 2 says that they kind of had those laws, at least some of them naturally etched on their heart to the point that when they did something internally, right, they, they responded with their failures in obeying that that law with shame or they responded with affirmation when they did obey that law so so in other words they and you and me and all of us on the face of the earth there's all of us can agree that there are certain things you look at and you're like yo that's wrong and that's right but also it means that if you're anything like me 
anything like these Gentiles from 2000, non-Jews from 2000 years ago, anything like the apostle Paul and anything like Timothy, you too have probably also not just seen something, but have done something that elicited the response of that's not right. And it's in that moment, that vulnerable moment, where like the false teachers from 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, our consciences get seared. And we begin to, to cling and to try to find anything that we can get our hands us to absolve us, to get us out of, to get us away from the guilt, from the shame, from the regret that starts to seep into our hearts the moment we recognize I have done something that somehow I know I shouldn't have done. We begin to try to find a hope, try to find a forgiveness, try to find a way out. In short, we try to find a savior. And here's the thing. We all do this differently. We all do this differently. You do something, you know that you shouldn't have done it. You regret it. And all of a sudden we're trying to get out of it. And, and maybe you do it by trying to justify it. Right? You, maybe you're the kind that kind of justifies it. You say, well, well, if they hadn't said that, then I wouldn't have said anything. If they hadn't done that, then I wouldn't have done anything. Or, or maybe you justify it with your past and you say, well, I've gone through this and I've gone through that and, and I've gone through all these things. So you can't really hold me accountable because those are the reasons and those are the people and those are the circumstances that are responsible for this right now. Or, or maybe you're the kind that minimizes it. Right, maybe you're the kind that says, well, it wasn't that bad. And like, they didn't even seem that hurt. And, and really, it wasn't that big of a deal to them. So I guess it wasn't that bad. Or, or maybe you minimize it by comparing yourself. And you say, well, well, they've done stuff that's far worse than what I've done. And so it must not be that big of a deal. I, I, it's probably not that bad. Or maybe you're the kind that makes up for it. Right. Maybe you're the kind that says, hey, I'll make it up to that person, to those people. In fact, I'll make it up so much. Maybe I'll just prove to you that I'm a much better person than you think. Maybe I don't need to try to replace the circumstances that you're in, but I at least want to prove that I'm not the person you believe I am. I'll make it up. All the while, if the Apostle Paul was here with us today, if he was writing us a letter or sending us an email or text message, he would be looking at us and screaming, none of that helps you. None of that helps you. None of that. It doesn't take away the guilt. It doesn't take away the shame. It doesn't take away the regret. They're all really just fairy tales. They're all really just pointless and silly myths. And the thing is, they leave you, they leave your soul, they leave your heart with more bruises and more bangs and more scratches and more dents than you had before you did them. You see, friend, they're the wrong tools. You have a goal in life. You want to get somewhere. You want to grow. You want to feel better about yourself or your life or whatever your goal is. These are not the right tools to, to, to use. Because while you think that you are justifying yourself or you think that you're getting out of it or you think that you're figuring out a way to absolve yourself, in reality, you're just hurting yourself. They're the wrong tools. And here's the thing. Paul would take it a step further than just saying they're the wrong tools. He would say these are demonic tools. Because these tools tell you that you're the solution, that you're the answer, that you're the savior. And I don't know about you, but I've tried to live as my own savior and as my own God, and it never ends well. They're the wrong tools, friends. They're the wrong tools. And so what's the alternative? Okay, what are the right tools? Well, 
Before Paul gives us the right tools, again, he has to give us the correct goal. Because remember that it's only the right goal that produces or reveals, I should say, the right tools. So before we get to the tools, we first have to understand the goal. And that's where Paul goes next in the text. Check this out. Going back to verse 7, okay, after Paul says, have, have nothing to do with pointless and silly myths, he continues, rather, train yourself in godliness. For the training of the body has limited benefit, but godliness is beneficial in every way since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. Before Paul offers the right tools, he has to give us the correct goal, and the correct goal is godliness. Godliness. Now, if you're anything like me and most other people, you're probably responding to this word, godliness, in one of two ways. You're either saying, bro, what in the world is godliness? Or you're saying, yeah, that makes sense. In other words, this idea is either completely foreign to you or completely common to you. Completely foreign to you or completely common to you, neither of which give the proper amount of respect to the idea of godliness that it deserves. Okay, this week, one of the things I did was I just went to all of the resources that I had, like Bible software, um, all like the commentaries and the systematic theologies on the bookshelf, and I tried to just pull all the definitions of godliness that I could find some of which were harder to understand, some of which were a little less hard to understand. Very few were just like simple. Uh, But I I tried to combine them enough to give us a usable and understandable definition of godliness. And it's this, that godliness is the awareness of and trust in God's sovereignty and authority over our lives. So what is godliness? Well, godliness is the awareness of and trust in God's sovereignty, that's his control and his authority over our lives. This idea that our hearts are aware of God's control and aware of God's authority to be able to tell us that's right, that's wrong, but also that we trust in that same sovereignty. We trust in that same authority. Going so far to say that we don't just trust that it's the right thing, but we trust that he would actually provide and give us the things we need to do the right thing or the things we need to just satisfy our soul, right? Like, like that, that's godliness. And it's this idea, this idea of godliness that Paul is saying is the correct goal. Instead of paying attention to silly myths, instead of pursuing ways to absolve yourself or to become a better person uh, by, by denying yourself this, denying yourself that, rather pursue godliness. Pursue an awareness and a trust in God's sovereignty and authority over your life. Why? Because godliness is beneficial in everything. Because it holds promise for the present life and the life to come. And friend, I think that is probably the biggest characteristic that Paul is highlighting. That may be why he's saying that's the correct goal. To pursue that. Because for us, if I'm being honest, our goals, oftentimes what happens is, in, in our mind and in our hearts, our goals tend to elevate the present life and minimize the life to come. Or they tend to elevate the life to come and minimize the present life. All the while, 
Paul wants us to pursue godliness because godliness holds in tension the promise for t- today, the present life, and the promise for tomorrow, the, the life to come. It's the assurance, right? Only godliness, I should say, gives us the assurance that what we need today, God will give us today. And what our hearts long for still, God has promised to give us in the life to come. And, and this attitude is critical in growing. This attitude is critical in growing. What do you mean? Well, think about it. If you're in a position where you want to grow in patience, it probably means you're going to get put in positions that require patience. Right, like, like you're gonna you're gonna be required to be waiting on something, or to be be longing for something, or maybe to extend forgiveness to somebody that doesn't deserve it. All of which requires patience. And in the middle of that situation, everything in our heart is gonna be going. I don't like this. I'm uncomfortable in this. You see, what what if all the waiting leads to something that's not even worth it? What if all the longing ends up getting us to the point where we don't get the thing that we're longing for? What if forgiving the person doesn't mean that they become better or they like us more, but rather they turn their back on us and we never see them again and we lose out on justice? I don't like any of it. But godliness steps in in those situations and goes, hey, what you need, what you need, friend, God will give you today. And what your heart still lacks, he has promised to give you tomorrow. That's why godliness is critical in the actual act of growing. Because anything that calls us to lay down our lives, anything that calls us uh, to grow and to rise to the moment in, in being selfless, in being loving, in being compassionate, in being responsible, in being ethical, all of it will hold intention. There's a promise from God for you today. But everything else you long for, he promises he will also give you tomorrow. Without that tension, we in our own hearts begin to elevate the needs of today and minimize the promises of tomorrow, or we begin to elevate the promise of, promises of tomorrow and neglect the needs of today, right? It is only in this tension of godliness that we are given the tools to, to step into these circumstances that are demanding of our hearts and say, I have confidence. I am aware and I trust that there is a good God who is sovereign and authoritative over my life and I trust him. He has my trust. I believe in him. I can do what's in front of me. He has me. He's holding me. I'm safe. He's good. That's why godliness is important, friends. That's why godliness is the correct goal. But having understood that now, Having understood that, how do we cultivate godliness? How do we get to godliness? You know what? Actually, I'm sorry. I can't go there yet. I want to ask you a couple of questions. How is godliness in your goals? How is godliness? Because I was thinking about this in preparation, and I was questioning whether I was going to add it in, but when I was about to start, I just figured I want to ask this. How is godliness in your goals? If you have a goal, if you have a desire to grow and to become a more patient person, is it for godly purposes or is it for selfish purposes? And here's the thing, when it comes to even more practical goals, like this year I want to perform well at work and like get a raise or something like that, why? Is it just for the purpose of having more money? 
Or is there an aspect of trusting and affirming God's sovereignty and authority in our lives that we desire to use that money for, to, to care for those in need, to, to invite them into our home and to provide, provide a refuge for them and to provide family to them? Are those some of the things that are motivating our desire to grow? It doesn't mean that your whole goals have to change. It means that the motivation, the, 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 the core of the goal needs to be godliness. And everything that surrounds that is fine. As long as, as the centerpiece of it is, God, how is this thing going to serve me growing in my trust uh, and my awareness of your sovereignty, your authority, your love, your goodness in my life? That's the goal. Okay, so now with, with that goal in mind, uh, let's return back to the point. How, how can we cultivate that? What tools do we have to build into that? And that's where, right, I, I want to go back to the text, but I want to really jump back to a couple. Uh, that, that One that, that Paul doesn't mention, but one that he does. In short, I want to emphasize two goals, uh, or two tools, two of the right tools. And hear me, friends, there's not two tools, right? The Holy Spirit, this is kind of a it's almost like a lame subheading because if I'm being honest, the Holy Spirit can use whatever you got. Like, if godliness is the goal and trusting Him and loving Him is the goal, then man, God is working in you. And at that point, the Holy Spirit can use Coco the movie for all we know to, in order to spur on a trust in His goodness. But I do want to highlight two that are important to us as a church as a refuge. And those two are prayer and studying scripture. Okay, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on prayer because next week our whole sermon is actually on prayer. But prayer is one of the most submissive acts to God that we can do. A moment of placing our heart, our mind, really our whole body before God and saying, work in me. I don't even know how it's going to happen, but I'm going to pray to you and your spirit is going to, to speak the things that I can't. There's a whole line, a whole theology of prayer in the Bible that's super encouraging. And that's what we're going to cover tomorrow. So pray. But the other thing, the other thing is something that Paul actually talks about in verse 6. When describing a good servant of Jesus, um, he says a good servant of Jesus is nourished by the words of the faith and good teaching nourished by the words of the faith and good teaching in other words nourished by the scriptures nourished by the bible friends you want to look at a right tool this this is a right tool earlier you heard me say that you don't need a bible to know that there's a god 100 percent true the bible i think would affirm that Earlier, you also heard me say that you don't need a Bible to know some of the laws that God has put into the moral laws that God has put into the world. Again, also true. I think the Bible would affirm that as well. But here's the thing, friend. You 100%, you 100% need a Bible to know that God has loved and sought the restoration and redemption of this creation. And that he's put in place a plan that has drawn man to his, his goodness through the forgiveness of their sins and the relief from guilt, shame, regret that we are all longing for but can't gain and, and attain on our own. The judgment that we feel on our lives from ourselves but also from God himself has been alleviated, has been, has been relieved from us by this plan of redemption. You can't get that without this book. 
You can't know that without this. The, this these words are we believe are God's living words, and and to steal some language from a, a brother in Atlanta named John Anuchekwa, they 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 serve as both a mirror and a window. Okay, like these words when we open them and we read them, they function like a mirror, right? They take us on this journey of humanity's story, and they show us these high moments that that oftentimes when 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 the scriptures are functioning like a mirror, these high moments, yeah, they sometimes inspire us, but they also confront us with, have you ever done that? And we get this uneasy feeling of, I don't think so. But then a page later, we'll see that same human figure drop from the mountain into the valley where he's just just committing atrocious acts. And we look at that. And when when the scriptures are functioning like a mirror, we begin to relate to that in a little bit. And we're like, I don't want to relate to that. Like, I don't I don't want to even think about me being that bad. But all the while, the scriptures are showing us as a mirror that the story of our lives is not marked by these mountaintop moments, but they're really marked by this cycle of failure and mess ups and every time we get back to the top and we think everything is fine we begin to realize that the thing we built is actually flimsy and hanging on by a thread and when I hit a bump when I turn the when I when I take a, a turn tight all of a sudden everything starts falling apart and swoosh there I go down to the valley and it's in those moments that we begin to realize that we need a savior and if we're not careful if we're not using the right tools we begin to grab for everything but it's when you use the right tools that the mirror then becomes a window and you look past the thing you see in yourself and you begin to look into the window and see through it to God and see how God has not just been seen, but now God also sees you and how God has now put in place a plan where God himself would step away and out of glory and into the brokenness that you and I call home. And he would now live a life that we couldn't live. And every time we elected to use an, a wrong tool, he elected to use the right tool. And every time we live with a lack of trust of God's sovereignty and goodness, this God, Jesus, lived in complete assurance and trust of God's goodness and his, his sovereignty, right? And all these moments, each and every step, Jesus building this beautiful, Beautiful, perfect life yet he lays it down on this cross he lays it down on this cross so that we who have actually earned the guilt and shame and regret that he's experiencing on this tree could now inherit the good gifts that he earned through his own life and resurrects to provide us new life forever friends this story is one that you only get when you work through the mirrors and the windows of this book all right that's why it's powerful, friends, because it doesn't just tell us what we're bad and what we're good at. It gives us a window to point us back to Jesus himself reigning gloriously and graciously and, 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 and inviting us to come to him. Right. That's the ultimate tool. Right. The ultimate means of getting to, to, to godliness is God's grace. And, and it's only through the tools of scripture, prayer, but, but it's the Holy Spirit working to point us back there. In other words, the right tool is the tool that points you back to Jesus, friend. That's the right tool. And it seems cliche, but I promise you, that's the right tool. When the goal becomes godliness and pursuing Jesus is the fundamental part of godliness, then the tools that we pick up that point us back to Jesus are the right tools. It reminds me, actually, uh, 
this whole thing reminded me of the movie Schindler's List. I'm sure a lot of you have seen it. Maybe some of you haven't. But in Schindler's List, it follows the story of a man named Oskar Schindler, who was a, a German industrialist during the Second World War. In other words, he kind of owned a factory or maybe several. But um, Schindler ended up needing some, some more workers, some more laborers. And so he started hiring Jewish refugees from the concentration camps to come and work at his factory. And whether he knew it at the beginning or not, when he hired them, he actually saved them and spared them from the terror and the most certain death that was awaiting them in the concentration camps. And, and during the story, there's this weird tension because Schindler doesn't really know if this is the, what he's like really supposed to be doing. He's wrestling with this sense of like loyalty to the Nazi party, but he also is is actively at work kind of hiring these people and saving them and it all kind of builds up to this climactic point at the very end when the world the war is finally over and Schindler at the very end exits his his um his factory and is greeted by a crowd of Jewish refugees applauding him thanking him and praising him in the end, it said that Schindler actually saved over a thousand people from the concentration camps. And, and in that moment, something breaks in Oscar Schindler's heart and he begins to see that the goal that he should have had the whole time, the goal that he's longing for and that he now is longing, that he longs for now, is to see these people saved. To see these lives saved from the terror of the concentration camps. And in that moment, all of the tools in front of him become evident. He looks down at his watch and thinks, if I had sold this watch, I could have hired one more. If I would have sold this ring, I could have hired one more. If I would have sold this car, I could have hired 15 more. That's 17 lives. If I would have just used what was in front of me. Friends, when godliness becomes the goal of our mind's eye and the goal of our heart, then every single page of scripture becomes a means by which we long to find the goodness of God in scripture that builds the trust of our heart that God is good and that he has, will give us what we need today and what we long for tomorrow he has promised to give us tomorrow friends that's the means right those are the beauty that's the beauty of the right tools the tools of personal growth right they point us back to the ultimate act of God's love that proves his trustworthiness, Jesus on the cross paying our price. And so as I wrap up today, I want to give you one application point. It's simply this. Get in your Bible. Get in your Bible. Start a reading plan. The Bible app, Blue Letter Bible. If you want to spend a little money, Logos, Bible Software, Olive Tree, Bible Software, all of those. Audio Bible, there's something like, there's stuff like Street Lights, Dwell Bible app. But here's the thing, I don't just want to encourage you to do that, okay? What I more want to do is I want to empower you to do that. Studying the scripture is something that we hold as a value of discipleship. If you want to be a disciple at Refuge, reading, studying the scriptures is critical. And so what I want to do, rather than just tell you to read the Bible, is I want to equip you to read the Bible. And so this week, Lord willing, we should be finalizing a church um, community discount, actually, just like a church pricing plan on Dwell Bible app, which is like an audio Bible listening app that is like 
really awesome. I use it. I know Sean uses it. Uh, and it's going to be a church-wide plan that we will pay, but that gives you free access to the service that provides you with reading plans, like a ton of different audio Bibles, really awesome music that kind of sets your mind onto the words of God. Because again, we don't just want to encourage you to go do it. We want to empower you uh, to search the scriptures and build this affection for God. Friends, so this week, to finish that point, be expecting an email from me as I send you out a link that, that invites you to sign up for Dwell, but then uh, also just gets you plugged in. And I just want to encourage you to dive in. Friends, this is a... W- These pages tell a story that changes our hearts, our lives, our eternities. I want to encourage you to dive into it. Um, because as God changes our goal to godliness, he's given us such beautiful tools to pursue it. Okay. All right. I'm a little over in time. So what I want to do is I want to close up in prayer and I want to jump back into song of worship so we can respond to um, the word today. And then we're going to come back in and close up. All right. Uh, so would, would you please join me in praying? Father, thank you so much for um, your spirit that indwells us. That is, I mean, like, he is our helper. When you think about pursuing godliness, like the Holy Spirit in us is the main thing that we're, we're talking about. Yet, uh, Father, you give us a spirit so that we can actively do things like open the Bible and be spoken to by the spirit through the words of the Bible, uh, by praying and, and receiving from your spirit in prayer. And so God, I ask that you would help us do that. As we go through this year thinking about the goals of our lives, let them be marked by a specific type of godliness, a desire to to grow in trusting your sovereignty and your goodness, your authority over our lives. And let us cling to the tools that are available to us that, that don't just feed our minds, but rather point our hearts back to Jesus the author, perfecter of our faith and the one who has saved our souls. We pray these things in his mighty name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Thank you for listening. We hope this message encourages you and strengthens your faith. 